Our journey with Jesus is a series of returns. That's where we started the weekend with. That's where I'm going to finish us this weekend. A series of returning over and over and over again to the God who loves us most, to the God who has the power to change us, redeem us, and make our life something different than they would be without him. A series of returns. And there doesn't have to be big space in between the returns because the return should be a daily thing when we leave this place. I read a prayer once. It says, so far today, God, I've done all right. I haven't been nasty, grumpy, or selfish. But in a few minutes, I'm going to get out of bed. And from this point on, I'm going to need your help. And this is why we need a series of daily returns. For me, sometimes it's a series of hourly returns. If I'm in the middle of something hard, even as I've been the last month, it is a series of hourly returns where I literally will set the alarm on my phone to go off every hour at the top of the hour so that I will stop for a moment and I will remember who he is and I will declare who he is and I will once again frame my life and the cup of my circumstance that I'm dealing with with who he is and then I go on with that hour. And then the next hour comes. And nobody has to know what I'm doing. It's something between me and the Lord returning again and again and again to the truth of who he is so that framing my life and seeing my story based on him starts to become as natural as breathing. It doesn't mean that I'm not alarmed. It doesn't mean that I don't get afraid. It doesn't mean sometimes that I don't spin with anxiety, but what it does mean is I know who to go to when those things come up in life. So this morning, I want us to return to something that is probably pretty familiar to everybody in this room because most of us have been to memorial services and funerals. And so this is known as the funeral passage. It's usually at every uh, mortuary is on the back of every funeral program, and that is Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But before I read it this morning and before I talk about it this morning, what I want you to know is this isn't for funerals. There are six verses, only six verses in this psalm. What a beautiful psalm this would be for you to memorize Six verses that are such powerful truths that they have the ability to completely change the way you look at your life and the way you look at God's involvement in your life. And that's why I wanted to land here this morning because those things are so very important. You can hear stories I've told you some stories. We've laughed together. I'm going to tell you a few more stories. We will laugh together. But my stories aren't what's important. What is important is that you have something foundational to take with you, to stand on in the real world, to help you reframe your life in a way that you will see your story through biblical lens. Psalm 23. Are you ready? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I want to just stop after those four. These four verses tell us something about the psalmist's relationship with God. First of all, he says, the Lord is mine. 
What do you call yours? Your house, your husband, your children, your favorite designer bag, I don't know. What is yours? What is something that you feel like is yours? David said, the Lord is mine. It is, was personal. He is my shepherd. He's not just the shepherd of the whole world. He's just not going after all the lost sheep, but he is mine. It was deeply personal. And then he goes on to talk about the personal involvement when he says, he makes me. So he's talking here about he makes me lie down. Sometimes, because he is our shepherd and because we are his beloved, he will move in our life in such a way where our cup of circumstance is unfavorable in our own eyes, but it could very well be God making us to lie down for a season because that's what's best for us. He makes me and he leads me. Very personal. He restores my soul, David said. So sometimes when we think of soul, we think of something like kind of airy and I don't know, we don't think of it as something very tangible and personal, but listen to me. Soul there means my heart, mind, will, and emotions. Now what does that say? He restores my heart. He restores the fragmented parts in my mind because of my heart when it's been broken or confused or stuck in sin. He restores my will. Paul, Paul said he works in me to will and then to do of his good purpose. When you start desiring to do something different and to do something good or to do something that's a calling, it usually is God working in you to will. He gives you the will. He restores my soul. It means that as I return to him over and over again that he takes the very center part of me and he brings healing. He takes the very center part of me, and he brings change. He takes the parts that are fragmented, and he makes them whole. And only God can do this, the good shepherd that knows me and knows you better than we know ourselves. You know, when I sat with Psalm 139 for a year, one part that really stuck out with me in the first part about him knowing me was that it says he knows what I'm going to say before I'm going to say it. I want, I want you to think about that for a minute. Scripture says that God knows what we're going to say even before the word is on our tongue. And Jesus told his disciples that out of your heart, your mouth will speak. So this means that God knows my heart. He knows everything in it. And if he knows my heart... And he knows what I'm going to say before I'm going to say it. That means he knows me entirely. And it says that he's always been with me and that I can't go anywhere from him. He's, when I stand up, when I lay down, that he is always with me. He knows me. Do you know, it's pretty bad when you're going to counselors and even you are tired of telling your sad, bad story. I needed to rest and quit telling my sad, bad story and know that God already knew it. And I needed to rest in these things of how much he knew me, that he makes me, he leads me, he restores me, and he guides me because he is my shepherd. And then it goes on to say, now he, it, he goes from uh, he, and he's going to change the direction he's going here. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you. Now it's you instead of he. He's talking to God. For you are with me. 
Even though I go through the hardest thing, I will not fear for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Think of this. Some of you are in circumstances where it feels like there's like enemies on every side. If it's not people, it's a circumstance. It's an attack from the enemy. But God prepares a table before you. Think of this. You're in the middle of a hard thing, and all you're saying is, Jesus, get me out of this. And he's going, honey, I have prepared a table before you right now. I am going to use this situation to rock your world and change your life. And then it says I, he, that he anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. This is in the presence of hard, in the presence of his enemies. Surely, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Your cup, whether you realize it or not, whether it's a good cup or a hard cup this weekend, your cup overflows with blessing. Maybe you haven't been able to see it, but your cup overflows with blessing. I'm in the middle, middle of a um, medical dilemma. Oh, my friends, my cup overflows with blessing because he is my shepherd, and he will be with me no matter what I go through. And I have not always known this, I have talked about it, but I have not known it. It is something different when you have to go through the experience of knowing it, and then you know, I know that I know that I know that God is a faithful God. Because you see, here he said, you are with me, you comfort me, you prepare a table before me, you anoint my head with oil, and your love and your mercy and your goodness follow me, chase after me, it says in some translations, all the days of my life. When we're in a hard place, it's easy for us to forget who he is and how he loves us. And so we must return, forget not. Remember who he is and how he loves. Years ago when I went through my divorce, things went from bad to worse really fast. Um, my mother, who at the time was my um, husband at the time, she was his uh, secretary at the church, and uh, my mother had a major stroke about three days after he came out with his truth of never loving me. And uh, so I had this dilemma on my hands. I had a broken heart. I didn't, I mean, the rug was just pulled out from under my life. I didn't know what was going on, why it was going on. I didn't know where God was in the middle of it. And now my mother, who was a widow, had a major stroke, and I'm caring for her. I'm pureeing food and exercising limbs and moving her into our home in one of the bedrooms in a hospital bed. That was really fun. That and if my, our relationship wasn't healed yet, so that was really fun in and of itself that God called me to care for her. Who was going to? But Jesus, who's going to care for me? And so as I was going through this, I would um, drive five hours to see my one sibling, a sister much older than me, in the Bay Area, and I would put grandma in the wheelchair and the kids in the car, and she would take over for the weekend, and I would veg out and be depressed. I had the luxury to do that, to not have to mom my kids for a little bit. 
This one trip when I went, I picked up my four-year-old son, something I normally did all the time. I was once a healthy young mom. And I picked him up and I put him into a shopping cart. And this particular time, in the middle of all the turmoil, when I put him in the shopping cart, all of a sudden I felt everything spin around me. The most intense pain I've ever felt in my life, worse than childbirth, and I had natural childbirth. And I fell to the ground, passed out. The next thing I know, and I'm in front of a Long's drugstore right in the entry, the next thing I know, I, w I open my eyes, I come to, there's a crowd of people around me. The store manager is saying, don't move, we've called an ambulance. My four-year-old son in his big brown eyes and darling little face is looking at me saying, mommy, are you going to die? And all I knew was that I could not feel anything from my waist down. Zip. I didn't know what the heck happened. They took me and my little boy off in an ambulance in a strange city. They decided to let my body rest because it, there was some huge trauma that had happened. And then once they realized that I had herniated two discs in my back, they said, you need to go back to your home five hours away to have this taken care of. The doctors in the Bay Area said, I don't know how to tell you this, but there is a large chance that you will have some permanent paralysis and some trouble walking after this severe of a herniation. Oh, this was lovely news, ladies. Lovely news. Really lovely news. Jesus, really. The divorce is bad enough. I have to mother these children because literally I was just left with two little kids and grandma. Like, what am I supposed to do? So now I get taken back to Bakersfield and I have my, my mother in a hospital bed in one room. I have myself in another room. I have the people of the church taking care of me and my boys and my mom, like the changing of the guard, bringing us meals, taking appointments, all that kind of stuff. I was never alone. Finally, one day, my mom was at therapy, um, physical therapy. My kids were at the park with people and I was alone in my den for the first time since this happened. And I still couldn't move and I still couldn't walk without assistance. And me and Jesus had this really great talk. It was more like me screaming at him, and I'm glad he didn't strike me dead, but this is the thing. He already knew what was in my heart, and I said, Lord, you've got to be kidding. I, if I am an invalid single mother, I will lose my children. I will not be able to raise them. And the divorce, the church, everything was bad enough, but my children are my heart, and I can't lose my little boys. They were four and a half and eight, and I can't. You don't understand, Jesus. And as I was crying out to him, those three numbers that I knew very well went across the screen in my mind, 828, 828, 828, and just if you don't know what that means, I had a lovely mentor, and when I was a pastor's wife, and she was obsessed with the Bible verse, Romans 8:28, she clung on to it with everything that was in her, and that was the one thing she passed on to me in life was, Debbie, all things work together for good. I mean, I thought she was a little crazy. I mean, I can remember a few years before this happened, we'd be doing errands together, and the clock in the car would say 8 to 8. She'd go, Debbie, it's 8 to 8. And I'm like, yeah, I, I see that. And then one time we were at the grocery store, and it was $8.28, and she says to the clerk, oh, 8 to 8. And he says, is there something wrong? And she goes, oh, no, in God's word, it says that all things work together for the good. Romans 8, 28. And then the killer was one day, she called me in August, I remember it was a Thursday morning. She called me. She says, Deb, guess what today is? And I'm like, it's Thursday. And she goes, it's 8 to 8. And I'm like, wow, she is over the top with this 8 to 8 stuff. But as I laid there in my pain, crying out to God, those three numbers went across the screen in my mind. And I told the Lord, I know what those numbers mean. And I don't believe them anymore. 
I just flat don't believe them. There is nothing good happening in my life. Nothing's working for good in my life. Everything is going worse by the day, and I don't believe in 828 anymore. 828, 828, 828. It would not leave my mind. And I cried out to God, and I said, but what about my back? What about my back, really? Because this is the darkest piece of the puzzle of my life right now. This is worse than the divorce. This is just going to change my whole life more than anything else has. I might lose my children. What about my back? I will never forget this, and I'm not going to say he spoke to me with an audible voice, but it was something that I knew within my soul as I whimpered in prayer before him. I felt as if he said to my heart, especially your back, trust me. And I cried myself to sleep that afternoon, and I didn't wake up healed. I didn't wake up walking, but I woke up with peace. I knew that God had met me there, and I knew he had spoken to me, and I didn't know what the answers were. But I knew that somehow, someway, he was going to use this back incident. I just didn't know how. Within a few weeks, I started walking. I started going to physical therapy, and I never had surgery on my back, and I never lost my kids. Now, fast forward many months later. I'm once again still depressed and visiting my sister in Pleasanton, California. And she normally took over for the kids, but this particular time, she got called into work on a Saturday, unheard of, and she woke me up really early, and she goes, you're going to have to have your own kids for a few hours. <laughs> Take them to the parade. There's a parade on Main Street. And I'm like, okay. And she goes, get up and get ready really quick, or you won't get a spot because it gets really crowded. I'm like, okay, okay. So I thought this would be a good distraction. So I got up, and I threw myself together, and I threw them together, and we all looked homeless. I had my hair up in some crazy thing, and I had wrinkled, wrinkled clothes. My kids were wrinkled, hair uncombed. We looked unkempt. We looked homeless. But I went down with my little beach chair to Main Street in Pleasanton, and I sat on a corner, and I saw the parade was going to happen, but there was nobody there, so I realized my sister must have gave us the wrong time. The police officer confirmed that for me, so we just sat down, and pretty soon, two little girls came running around the corner over at my boys. And we don't know anybody there. And they started talking to my kids. And they started just immediately, like kids do, just becoming the best of friends in seconds. And then I see their father, who was with them, go over and talk to the police officer. Now he must realize he's there too early, too. So now this little family, this man and these two little girls, sit next to me on the corner at the fair parade. I never said a word to him. I don't even think I looked in his direction. I was slumped down in my wrinkled clothes with my sunglasses, super depressed, saying, God, thank you for providing once again, because he was taking care of my kids. I didn't even know this guy, but he looked nice. They're right in front of me. They're all playing. They're doing bubblegum blowing contests. The whole thing, I'm like, thank you, Jesus. The parade came and went. I don't remember hardly anything about that parade, except at the end. At the end of the parade, I still had mom sense. I was still raising little people. And so I told my children, well, you need to thank this kind man for the gum and the things that he gave you, the snacks. So I put my beach chair under my arm, and I took my two little boys' hands, and we went up to this man who I did not know, and, I, and my children thanked him. And he looks at me, and he goes, now I know this is Justin, and this is Cameron, and you are. And I said, oh, I'm Debbie. Thank you so much for, the, for having your kids play with my kids and stuff. That was really nice. And he goes, looks straight in my eye, and he goes, are you just Debbie, or do you have a last name? And I said, oh, I don't have a last name. And I ran down Main Street, <laughs> ran, running with a chair under my arm and dragging two little boys behind me. The other side of the story is this. He went through a divorce, an unwanted divorce. 
After seven years of marriage and two little girls, he accepted Christ at Hume Lake right at the time of his divorce. Started walking with Jesus. He was divorced about four years before I met him at that parade, but the year before he met me, he began, he told the Lord, I'm not going to date. He did like all the Christian single stuff back then. That was a long time ago. And he, anyway, he decided, I'm not doing that. It's not for me, but I'm going to pray. And be careful what you pray for, ladies. He prayed specifically on a regular basis. That, I can hardly say it. I still can hardly say it as many times as I told this story. That God would bring him a strong Christian woman into the life of him and his little girls. So be careful what you pray for because God brought a Christian woman, but she was depressed, disheveled, and completely a mess. And the second part of his prayer is, when I meet her, I pray that I will know it's her. I don't know how God works. I never looked at him. Somehow, some way, he had a feeling that I was it. And so he asked if I had a last name, and I ran away from him. <laughs> and as I ran away like a crazed woman down the street dodging people, Main Street Pleasanton's pretty crowded at a parade, he thought to himself, I don't know how, Lord, but I'm going to find her. Now, God is really creative, ladies. What this man did for a career is he's a detective. <laughs> he's a real live detective. He's been on 2020 and Dateline. He's a real live detective, ladies. He, he's a homicide detective, actually. But even a really good, talented experienced detective cannot find a Debbie in the middle of who knows where. He got the feeling that we probably didn't live in town. And so he began thinking of all these crazy ways of how he was going to find me. He was going to put a billboard up on Highway 5 that said, met you and your sons at the Alameda County Fair Parade, call me. <laughs> People in law enforcement are like, you know, he worked at the district attorney's office. They're like, are you crazy? Like, so many weird women are going to be calling you. Like, and then they'd say stuff like, she must have been gorgeous. Like, this isn't like you. You don't have a problem finding a date. And he said, I don't remember what she looked like. I think she was a little disheveled. She might have been depressed. They're like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and he would say by faith to them, I don't know. Someday I'm going to explain it. He had so much faith that he had met me. Meanwhile, I go home, and we leave Pleasanton and go back home, and my kids are obsessed. They thought they met Magnum P.I. and his girls. And I would tell my children, he's not Magnum, for those of you that, no, no, that's Tom Selleck. So I, I would tell my kids, you did not meet Magnum P.I., and Magnum P.I. does not have any girls, and Magnum P.I. is some guy on TV, not the guy we met at the parade. And then they would do things like I'd be cleaning the house, and they'd say, Mom, the next time we go to um, Aunt Sharon's, can we have pizza with the girls? No, we don't know them. Next day, mom, can we call the girls? Because we want to go see, uh, go see Aunt Sharon and see those girls. We don't know these girls. <laughs> it was getting on my nerves. And then the people in the church, like my kids were telling them, we met these, this, these people at a parade. And everybody at the church, including the pastor that took over the church, said, oh, he's going to look you up. I mean, what, is, what does everybody not understand? I ran. If I wanted him to look me up, I would have given him my name. Hello, people. But I really had a church of faithful people that were praying for me and my kids that God would provide for us. And bigger than that, I had a faithful God who leads me, guides me, and restores me. And so probably about two months after the parade happened, when he couldn't figure out how to find me, one night he was going to sleep and he said, Lord, I'm so sorry if I've wasted too much energy on this. I'm really sorry. But this is my one last prayer. 
if I am right about this, if I heard you and I'm supposed to find her, you really have to show me how. And he started falling asleep, and as he started dozing off, he had a flash of memory, a picture in his mind of my four-year-old little boy when an ambulance came by in a hometown parade. And my little boy was so excited. He goes, the last time we were here, my mommy and I got to go, my mommy broke her back, and we got to go in an ambulance. He sits up in bed. He goes, that's it. I got her. (laughs) He had to do some finagling, but he did find a Debbie that was taken in ambulance with a little boy. And so I get this call, left on my machine. My daughters and I met you at the Alameda County Fair Parade. (laughs) A little more than that, and I'm like, what? And so then I leave a message back, and I say, how did you find me? Call me. (laughs) I'm like so sweet. Every man would want that kind of sweetness, wouldn't they? So he calls me back, and the first thing he says is, I, I just want to apologize. Like, I have no idea, like, where you're at. Or what, I mean, because he knew I sounded mad, right? And I think he's thinking he's going to lose his job or something <laughs> for tracking me down. Because the bigger part of this is he couldn't find all the details about me, and so he, decide, he saw he lived in the city of Bakersfield. So he called Bakersfield PD <laughs> to tell them this isn't, this isn't official, but if you'd like to help, this was his plan. And the person that answered... Like he says, this is Inspector Ray Allstorff. And she goes, Ray, this is Renda. It's his cousin, long lost cousin. (laughs) He didn't even know she lived in Bakersfield. So of course she got him the number and he got in no trouble. And that's how he found me. Anyway, he calls me and I'm giving him, you know, he's being all nice. I go, you can stop right now. I mean, I'm really mean. You can stop right now. Yeah, yeah, you're a Christian. That's awesome. I'm a Christian too. And I just went through an unwanted divorce. And like, I really don't like men. I don't want, I don't want to know a man. And I'm like, I'm really broken and I'm really messed up. And thanks so much for reaching out, but no thanks. And he's just like, (laughs) and so basically he just said, look, here's the deal. If you just need a friend ever, like, I've been through what what you've been through, and I'm so sorry what you're going through, but what he didn't know, at the church we were pastoring, like, it was really hard for people to talk to me. My church sent me two times a week, two and a half hours away each way to Thousand Oaks to see a counselor, because they wanted to give me the help that I needed, but nobody in the church could really talk to me. They were freaked out about what they saw their pastor do. So even though I had lots of people and lots of love and lots of gift and lots of people giving us money, taking the boys, taking care of us, I didn't have anyone to talk to. And so we ended up becoming phone friends. And I forgot to ever ask him again how he found me until the day about eight months later when he proposed to me. And then after he proposed to me, all of a sudden I'm like, wait, how did you ever find me? And that's when I heard the full story. And we were married only three months probably after that engagement. We've been married for 32 years, thank God. (laughs) However, here's the deal. If I had not hurt my back, did you catch that part of the story? (laughs) He could have never found me. What seemed like the worst thing in my life, what seemed like God wasn't taking care of me, what seemed like God wasn't leading and guiding me, which seemed like I thought maybe God was punishing me. I didn't know. But God knew exactly what he was doing. He's always working behind the scenes in our life. And if there wasn't a trail, he could have never, ever found me. And the trail was this back incident that got me straight before God where he said, 828, especially your back, trust me. And all of a sudden, 
understanding God in a way that we can't really understand fully started making sense. All of a sudden, I started really realizing that sometimes hard leads us into holy, and hard leads us into purpose, and hard leads us into the next step. Ladies, if you leave here and don't remember anything else besides who he is and how he loves you, please remember this, that hard is nothing to run away from. When you face hard, lean into Jesus with your entire personality. With everything about you, lean into him, heart, soul, strength, and mind. You don't have to like the hard. He's not going to be offended by that. You can tell him you don't like the hard, but declare what is true. No matter what is going on in your life, what the psalmist said in Psalm 23 is still the truest thing. He restores you. He guides you in paths of righteousness. He guides you. When you don't even think he's leading you, he's guiding you. And even if the heart makes you super afraid, remember that he is with you even in that. And even if the heart seems like everything's coming against you, remember that he prepares a banquet. What does that mean? He prepares a banquet before you in the presence of hardship in enemies, meaning he provides every beautiful thing that you need while you're in hard if you will look to him. There's some important questions that we leave with today. Lord, what do you have for me in this immediate current situation, whether it's a little thing or a big thing? Lord, what are you wanting to speak to my heart? What can you speak to me that no one else can speak to me? Lord, how can I grow better and not become bitter? Lord, how can I leave here and align my thoughts with the truth of your love for me? Remember, God is good even when what we're going through is not. I want to wind up this morning in Philippians 4 because the Apostle Paul teaches us a lot about what to do with problems as well. And so I just kind of wanted to wind up the weekend here. In 4 verse 1, he says, Therefore, um, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord, friends. And then he has a little part saying, please plead with these women to get along. Isn't that interesting? There was like female drama. So before we could get with how to handle things, plead with these ladies to get it together. Just had to throw that in. But anyway, verse 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. So now he's going to tell us how we stand firm. So I want to pass this on to you. This is how we should stand firm. Rejoice in the Lord always. He says, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Now, I want to tell you, before this, in chapter 3, when he's telling us to put no confidence in the flesh, and he tells us there to rejoice in the Lord, and he says, it's no trouble for me to write the same thing to you over and over again. He says, it's a safeguard for you. So this rejoice theme that he was giving to them was something that was a repeated theme for him. And he says, it doesn't bother me to keep repeating myself because it's a safeguard for you, which in the Greek, it is a word that means safety latch. So rejoicing is like a safety latch for your mind. Have you ever had a nice piece of jewelry, maybe a nice bracelet that you didn't want to lose and it has a safety latch? 
or a pair of earrings that have a safety latch? Well, when you start rejoicing despite your circumstances, it's like a safety latch that will keep your mind literally from coming apart. Is that not good news? Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, instead of being anxious, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present all your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, we can't understand it, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And so after that, rejoice, the Lord is near, do not be anxious, pray about everything, give God the details, thank him that he is with you, and then he says, finally, whatever is true. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there is anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. Find good and dwell there. Do you know there's always some good even in the middle of bad? We just miss it because sometimes we're just autopilot on the negative. But he says if there's anything good, dwell there. And then he says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Now, interesting, if you read it in context and keep going on, he also says, I have learned how to be content in all circumstances. And he also says, which you know this verse, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. Well, I remember my little boys put that verse on their little baseball cap. They thought it was going to give them home runs. (laughs) And sometimes we take that verse completely out of context. Yes, we can do things through Christ's strength. But what Paul was trying to teach them is to rejoice, to pray, to trust, to dwell on good and guard your mind, and then you will be content no matter what circumstance you're in, and then you will be able to do all things through Christ's strength. But it starts with rejoicing. First Thessalonians Thessalonians says, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So many of us want to know what God's will is for us, and it is to dare to thank, dare to look for the good, start looking for the good. Some days the only good is it's a beautiful sun today. Um, Sometimes the only good is I really enjoy enjoying my breakfast. My children are alive. They're breathing. I mean, sometimes you can't find a lot of good, but find any good, grab onto it, and begin living a life of gratefulness and thanksgiving because it will guard your mind and it will lead you into a different place of reframing your circumstances with the love of God for you. And in that, it won't matter what you go through, you will remain content. You might get a little fearful, have to draw yourself back, refuse anxiety, get your focus back again, but you will be content in every circumstance. Why? Because you will know this. The Lord is your shepherd. You have everything you need. The Lord is your shepherd. The Lord is mine. He is my shepherd, and I do not lack anything. If I do not have it today, I don't need it today because he will provide everything that I need. I close every speaking engagement with my mother's last words to me. If some of you have heard me before, you've heard this, but you're going to hear it again because I have been repeating this story for over 20 years at the end of every speaking engagement. It's a promise that I made to my mother on her deathbed. My mother died of something called a plastic anemia, and the reason I'm telling you that is because she was on hospice, but she was in no pain at all, so she was not on any of the traditional drugs. 
In fact, first time in her adult life, she was on no drugs. She was just wasting away because it's like a blood-borne cancer, but it didn't affect her with any pain. She was lingering, 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 and the hospice nurse told me one Monday, you need to go in and tell her it's okay for her to let go. And I'm like, well, I tried that, but they go, try again. I'm thinking, what, are you tired of your job? Like, you know. Anyway, so I went into my mom's bedside on a Monday morning, and I said, hey, mom, we're at peace with this. It's okay for you to let go. We know you're going to be with Jesus. My mom was a strong Christian. And she looked at me, and she said, I'm not going anywhere without you and those boys. And I said, um, well, it's your time, and it's not our time. We can't go with you. And her bottom lip started quivering, and she got, like, all emotional. And I'm like, what is going on, Mom? And she goes, we better hope that everything that we believed in is real. And I was, I was freaked out because my mom at this time, our relationship at this time was healed. Our, my mom was a strong Christian. My mom liked old hymns like, one glad morning, when this life is over, I'll fly away. Now she's, it's happening. And she's like, we better hope that it's real. And she can't quit her lip from quivering. And I, it broke my heart. I left there, and from that moment on, I began praying for her. My prayer was really simple. Jesus, do whatever you need to do so that my mama can die in peace. I couldn't stand the thought of her not dying in peace because she was really aware instead of like being in a coma or something. And so that was Monday. She had peace. She slept most of the week. Friday morning, she was in hospice at my sister's across town. Friday morning, the hospice nurse called me really early, and she goes, you got to get over here. Your mom's in her rally, code word, this is it. Uh, your mom's in her rally, and she specifically says she needs to speak to you. And I said, okay. So I raced across town to my sister's house. Nothing could have prepared me for what I was about to experience as I went up those stairs to the room where my mom was sitting in the hospital bed, sitting. She hadn't been able to sit for about three weeks. She's sitting up tall. I walk in the room, and she gets this gigantic smile when I walk in. And she says, Debbie, it's so fancy there. Okay, my mother was not a storyteller, not an embellisher, not a word woman that ever used the word fancy. It wasn't her. And I'm like, where, Mom? And she goes, sit down, and I'll tell you all about it. So not only did she had never use the word fancy, but she's like having a complete personality change. And I sat down next to the bed, and she began telling me thing after thing that she was experiencing, and the hospice nurse was writing it all down, lipping to me across the room with tears just solidly coming down her cheeks. This is real, not hallucinations, no meds, no meds. And so I know I'm like in this holy moment when all of a sudden after my mom tells me everything, she goes, well, I'm ready to go. She goes, go get the boys so I can say goodbye. So Monday, she's not going anywhere without us, and now she's like requesting me to drive across town, get the boys so she could say goodbye. And so I did. I went and got my boys. I brought them to say goodbye to Grandma. We get in her bed, and she says, just sing for me one more time before I go. And she told us what to sing because she was controlling. That didn't change at death. And... <laughs> So we sang for her, and as we're singing, she's looking around the room, and she's smiling. She even did a few winks, and she's, my boys are oblivious. They don't notice a thing, but I'm noticing, like, okay, there's something else happening in this room, and I think I might be on holy ground, and when we're done singing, she looks at my oldest son, who is 17 at the time, and she goes, oh, Justin, you look much more beautiful. Uh, you sound much more beautiful um, with the angels, and she goes, he goes, Grandma, it's just us here, and she, he goes, oh, that's right. You can't see them, but they were singing along with you, and y'all all sounded so beautiful and and she goes it's time for grandma to go let me say goodbye so she motions him the oldest to her bed first 
She takes his head into her hands, and they had the cutest little relationship. As soon as he got his license, he would take her to JCPenney's every week to get her hair done, and they would go to Carl's Jr., and, it, you know, he would shug along her wheelchair. It was the cutest thing. She had been at his plays at the high school with an oxygen tank. She'd check herself out of the hospital to go to a play. I mean, they had the cutest little relationship. Head in hand, and she said, Justin, you've always been my big blonde boy, and I have never wanted to leave you. And she goes, but you know, she got real childish. You know in the Bible, it says that his angels will take charge of us and keep us in all of our ways. And I've seen them, they're real. And I don't have to worry about a thing, Justin, you're in good hands. And so let, just promise me one last thing before I go. And he's sobbing, anything, Grandma, anything. And she goes, Justin, live like it's real because it is. And he's like, okay, Grandma. And he goes to the corner, he's crying. She motions the 13-year-old up. She does the same thing with him, and she ends with Cameron, live like it's real because it is. And now the boys are in a corner, huddled together, sobbing and holding each other. They loved their grandma so much. Whatever she lacked in being a mother, she made up for in being a grandmother. She was a wonderful grandmother. And they're crying, and now it's my turn. Remember, before this, I took care of her for eight years. So I'm thinking that I'm going to get the, my darling daughter. <laughs> I don't know what I thought, but she was running out of steam, and she just motioned to me to the bed and kept motioning me closer to the bed, and she grabbed my collar of my shirt, and she pulled my face right up to hers. She just stared at me through her eyes that just seemed different somehow, and she said, Deborah. Now, just for the record, my legal name is Deborah. I always hated the name Deborah. I kind of love it now because it's the last thing my mother ever called me, but don't you call me that. <laughs> she said, Deborah, live like it's real because it is. And I said, okay, Mom. And I'm thinking, oh, God, you're giving us a message. I mean, I was just trembling. And she puts her finger up, and she goes, oh, yeah. And those women that you speak to, promise me, you will spend the rest of your life, and when you have speaking breath, telling them to live like it's real, because it is. And those were the last words my mother ever spoke to me. And so I end this weekend so grateful that I got to be here with you. But I end this weekend more grateful that God was here with us all. And I end this weekend with a charge to you to live like his love for you is real because it is. To live like he is the restorer of your soul, your heart, mind, will, and emotions. He can change it all. Believe that that is real because it is. Live like his care for you is one who leads you and guides you and shepherds you, though you can't see him, is real because it is. And friends, this life isn't all there is. Life can change in a second, but there is one thing that never changes, and that is Jesus. And he has gone before us to prepare a place for us, and it is real. God bless you.